Let's try that one. There we are. Okay, sorry. Um, so this morning, I, there's two main things that are listed in this text. Um, and then there's a call to repentance toward the end. And so let's, let's kind of walk through this. So the first big thing that we see in verses 1 through 13 is blessings for obedience. If you are obedient to the covenant, there are certain blessings that will occur. So the chief call here is to not commit adultery. I mean, not to commit idolatry. No idolatry is to be had. That's the preeminent thing in God's economy. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And if you look closely enough in the New Testament, there is a call for there not to be any idolatry. You will have no other gods before me. And we're rebellious, sinful, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. And so God has to tell us that, I don't know, like twice on every page. That sounds like an exaggeration, but if you do a count up collectively through the Bible, he says it a lot. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any other gods before me. Even to the point of explaining to us in some places, other gods are actually nothing. They don't really exist. Don't have other gods before. Please don't chase the make-believe gods when you have a real God. And what do we do? Oh, don't be shy this morning. What do do we do? We chase the make-believe gods. I never. Yeah, yeah, you do. There's not one person in this room who at some point in their life pre-redemption or post-redemption, who has not placed some thing, some event, some person, some accolade, some activity, some something out there in the world above the place of Christ in their life. Not one of us. Every one of us is guilty of chasing after the false gods. May not be a statue that we built May not be a thing we carved out of wood. May not be a thing that we set up in our backyard and bowed down to. It may not be a thing that we physically actually sacrificed our children to like they did for the God of Molech. But there has always been in every person's life something that took precedent over the glory of Christ Jesus. Every one of us is guilty of idolatry. Which is the beautiful thing about the gospel, because when you present to people, hey, we're all sinners and somebody wants to argue with you about that. No, I'm not. Okay, has there ever been a time in your life where things have taken preeminence over the glory of Christ? Well, sure, you're a sinner. We don't even have to go to the rest of them. We don't have to talk about lying and Cheating and stealing and sexual sin. We don't even have to get into all that stuff. That's cosmic treason. That's what it is. And so here, like everywhere else in the scripture, the great mandate is no idolatry. And then to follow up with that here in this section, there's a call to keep the law. 
Notice what it says. Don't make for yourselves idols. Don't set up for yourselves image images. Don't set up for yourself a sacred pillar. Don't have a, a figure of stone. Don't bow down to it in your land. And then keep my Sabbaths. Reverence the sanctuary. And then verse 3. If you walk in my statutes, keep my commandments so that you carry them out. Keep the law. Don't commit idolatry and keep the law. We are O for 2. The Jewish people were 0 for 2. That's why we have this huge story in the Old Testament of them constantly blowing it. And we look back a lot of times with some sort of post-Jesus arrogant pride toward the nation of Israel. They were always blowing it. So were we. The difference with most of us in the room as I scan the crowd and recognize that most of you are not Jewish is that we didn't even have hope of God in the world. We spent our whole lives in our ancestry chasing after the false gods. We never even got the advantage of knowing what the one real God's law was to keep in the first place. Because we were just running after fake gods the whole time in our ancestry. Killing our kids to it and killing our enemies to it and doing all other manner of horrible things to worship our fake gods that we had in our deep, deep past. So this is a call to obedience. Don't have any idols. Keep the law. Now, what's the blessing of that? He gives us a blessing. Now, I want you to notice we're looking at verses 1 through 13. To give you a heads up, when we look at the penalties for disobedience, we're going to look at verses 14 through 39. One side of this is way more weighted than the other. So there's some blessings for obedience. They are few, but there are some. Here they are. If you keep the covenant, don't commit idolatry and maintain the law. God will send to the land, to the people of the land, rain and yield of harvest. This land that I'm giving you. This land flowing with milk and honey, this land that's going to be super blessed with all kinds of stuff, so blessed that when I bless it, you'll be able to take Sabbath years and not even have to do any harvest work, any agricultural work. We saw that the last time. I'm going to send rain and I'm going to send yield. I'm going to send an increase of harvest. Second benefit of keeping obedience to the covenant. You will have peace with man and peace with beast. Wild beasts won't come and devour you or your children. They won't come and destroy your crops. You'll have peace with the people around you. Your enemies will not be able to overcome you, which actually flows into the third blessing. When your enemies do come, if you're obedient to the covenant, you'll have victory in war. Your enemies will constantly flee from you and you will be feared by them. One of you will chase a bunch and a hundred of you will chase a whole lot more and your enemies will just be gone all the time. Like they'll just be terrified of you. I will also bless the womb. God says here, you'll be fruitful. I will multiply you in the land. And this wonderful thing. At the end of the blessings, the last four or five verses, God himself says, I will dwell with you As my people, he says it in verse 12, and I will also walk among you and be your God. What does that sound like? When's the last time in the Old Testament that God dwelled with his people and walked with them? Where? Eden. Pre-fall. Before sin. 
That was one of the great blessings of not being in sin is that God would come and walk with Adam. He would dwell with him. He would have conversations with him as uh, people do face to face with each other. Much like Christ did when he came to redeem us from sin in his incarnation. And so that's the blessings. You have rain and yield. You have peace with man and beast. You have victory and war. You'll be fruitful and multiply. And God himself will dwell among his people. Now, what about if you break the covenant? What about penalties for disobedience? Verse 14 says, but if you do not obey me, and if you do not carry out these commandments, and if instead you reject my statutes and your soul abhors my ordinances and you do not carry out my commandments and so you break my covenant, then he gives a list of things. Quite a long, involved and treacherous list of things. For disobedience. First. You experience substantial physical illness. The word pestilence is used at least twice. You'll gather in your cities and I'll send a wasting disease among you. Not good. Because of the severe levels of physical sickness that people will face, it will be accompanied with mental despair. People will anguish and fret and sorrow and have fear, even when there's no reason for them to do so. Listen, I know that we live in a culture and a world where people have a number of psychological issues, many of them very legit, many of them requiring substantial help. But the fact that our culture is overrun with mental despair is a demonstration of part of this just by extension. Because we have become a people of anxiousness, fearfulness and fretfulness. That's what we've become. Even those who are redeemed in Christ and have been commanded by him to not be anxious and to not be afraid. We spend a substantial amount of our emotional capital on worrying about things that will never come to pass. We're scared all the time of stuff that probably won't happen and that we can't control. We have mental despair. And friends, that's that's not good. And God actually says that one of his punishments for disobedience will be mental despair. People will just be living in a state of fretfulness and fearfulness all the time. They'll just be worried constantly, even when no one is there. The rustling of the leaves will make a person think that an enemy is coming to get them when in fact it's just the wind. Third, enemies will actually come and when they come, they will devour all of the resources that God had blessed the land with. Your enemies will come and they'll devour the land. You'll sow the seed, but they will eat the harvest from it. And then after they come and devour the land, if you still continue to live in sin and rebellion against God, the land will cease to yield any produce for you at all. It'll just stop producing. 
And then you will live at enmity with both man and beast. The wild animals will come and devour your children. Your enemies will come and enslave you again and drive you out of the land. And then lastly and sadly and most horribly, there will be a destruction of your children, both by beast, by enemy and by the hands of their own parents. Be driven to the point, and we actually see this a few times in Israel's history, be driven to the point of despair and starvation so much that they choose to eat their own children rather than trying to find food elsewhere. This is the penalties for disobedience, and it's pretty severe. It's pretty intense. But when you get to verse 40, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope. Notice verse 40, and I want to spend a couple of minutes here. There's a call to repentance. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. I also was acting with hostility against them. So uh, to bring them into a land of their enemies Or if their uncircumcised heart, I want you to put a a marker there because that's going to be really important. If their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. And I will remember the land. God calls them to repentance. If you Repent of your iniquity. Friends, hear me this morning. In the Old Testament, there's types and there's shadows of Jesus Christ and his gospel. But every once in a while, there are bright, shining, floodlight pictures of the gospel. This is one of them. Because the gospel is always accompanied with a call to repentance. Our God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. And if we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what John says in the New Testament. Guess what? That's not a new thing God picked up in the new covenant. He's always been that way. And so here he says to the people, when you rebel against me and all these penalties for disobedience fall on you, if you will turn away, if you'll confess your sin, confess your iniquity, repent is what he's calling them to do. Then I will remember my covenant. I am a faithful God and I will be faithful to you. And in your faithfulness to turn from your sins, I will heal you. I will forgive you. I will restore you. Man, if that doesn't just scream gospel, I don't know what does. Notice it's right at the end of the law, too, by the way. Very beginning of the law. Here's sacrifices that need to be made for you to have a right standing with God. Picture of the death of Christ right here at the end of the law. What it really comes down to is your repentance. Screams the gospel. It's beautiful. God will remember the covenant. God will remember the land. Remember, this is a covenant for God's sake, not for man's sake. 
God is displaying his glory and his majesty through this covenant. This covenant was made under the notion of God's redemptive power of delivering his people from an enemy they never could have overcome on their own. Their freedom from the Egyptians, which was a type and a shadow of their deliverance from their own spiritual slavery to their own sin that they also never could have overcome on their own. It's a remarkable picture of the gospel being built up across multiple generations in the Old Testament. And so what I want us to spend our last few minutes together doing is seeing this picture here from Leviticus chapter 26, particularly verse 41, where it talks about the uncircumcised heart. I want to talk about Jesus and the new circumcised heart. Because notice here. Their circumcision. Their sign of the old covenant. Did nothing. To protect or preserve them from God's wrath when they lived in their sin. I want you to hear that and I want you to let that settle on the mind for a minute. Their circumcision, the sign of the old covenant, did nothing to preserve or protect them from the wrath of God When they lived in their disobedience. Did nothing. He doesn't even point back to their actual fleshly circumcision. He calls them out on where the true circumcision should have been. And he declares that they had uncircumcised hearts. Because hear me this morning, friend. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling. Because this is my life story. And I'm sure it's many of your life story. You can have All of the outward signs and symbols of the Christian faith and still have an unrepentant, unregenerate, uncircumcised heart and be living under the wrath of God while showing all the bells and whistles of being someone who thinks that they're in the covenant. Every one of these people would have told you, I make my daily offerings. I make the annual offerings. I celebrate the festivals. I've been circumcised. I do all the stuff. I'm a child of Abraham. You know, Jesus had a conversation with some people in public about that. During his ministry. Oh, do you not think that God could raise up children for Abraham from these rocks? Doesn't care about that. As you get into the minor prophets, it says God doesn't even desire your sacrifices or your feast days. What does he want? A contrite spirit, a broken heart over sin, a heart that has been circumcised. As Ezekiel says, a heart of stone that's been replaced by a heart of flesh. That's what God desires and longs for in the people that bear his image. And friends, generation after generation, both in the Old and the New Covenant, there have been plenty of people who have worn all of the whitewashed tomb outward realities of what it means to be a covenant person um, in God's economy. Maybe you walked that aisle. Maybe you prayed that prayer. Maybe you filled that card in. Maybe you got dunked in the water tank. 
Maybe you had high attendance and got the high attendance sticker for all the times you attended all the Bible studies and the Sunday schools and came to the worship services. And yet still your heart is blocked off to the glory of who Jesus actually is as king and as savior. And friend, hear me this morning. The circumcision of these people did nothing to deliver them from the wrath of God and their sin. And your outward signs and your outward actions will do nothing to deliver you from the wrath of God if you still remain in your sin. Because, friends, it's not your religious actions that save you. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at Jesus's gospel as a call to repentance. I want everybody to flip over to Romans chapter two. Romans chapter two. We could spend 45 or 50 minutes starting at Romans 118 and running all the way through the end of chapter three. We won't do that. But it would definitely nail in the point quite a bit. In Romans chapter 2, it's speaking about how God doesn't show partiality. Predominantly how he doesn't show partiality in condemning people in their sin. Both the Jew and the Greek alike, the Gentile and the Jew, both are under condemnation because they're in sin and rebellion. They've been made in the image of God and they have abandoned that image bearing and their hearts are hard against the things of the Lord. And then as you move down to to verse 17, Paul specifically begins talking to and about the Jewish people. And he says, but if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and you boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Uh, You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And if you want the reference, it's from Isaiah. For indeed, circumcision is of no value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, he uh, will he not judge the, you who having the letter of the law and circumcision, yet you're a trans- transgressor of the law. Notice here, verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward removal of the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And if we were to keep going through chapter three, Paul asked the questions, what advantage does the Jew have then? What benefit is the circumcision? And he begins laying out the true benefits of that. Hey, you had every opportunity to know what the gospel is. More than any of these Gentiles did, you had every chance To see the type and shadow and see it fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had every opportunity. And yet you squandered it. Squandered every opportunity. And he ends that, as you well know, about how the whole world's guilty. And he quotes a number of the Psalms. And there's none righteous, not even one. None who understands, none who seeks God. All turn aside. And then if you get down in chapter 3 to verse 21. 
it begins to explain how all of this can come together. Back up to verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be held accountable to God. Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Friends, I've, I know that there's a lot of disagreement in the Christian church over the millennia. And there's a lot of disagreement in the Christian church even still now today. But I see, and, and those of you who've been with me the near 12 years that I've been here, I've only done what I'm about to do like two other times from the pulpit. So if you're a guest, doesn't sound like that big a deal. Some of you are about to be shocked. I see absolutely no way you can read the Bible the way it's written and come to the conclusion that you can be saved through the law. That is not the point of the law. Never has been, never will be. The point of the law is to show you that you are a wretched sinner in need of a Savior. You will not be delivered by keeping any act, any ritual, any festival, any commandment of the law, not one single iota of it. It does not save you. It only condemns you. That's the purpose of the law. You are not moral through the law. You are not righteous through the law. You are not ethical through the law. You are moral, righteous, and ethical through the grace of God by being conformed supernaturally to the image of Jesus Christ in salvation. That's it. That's it. And Paul says it about as plainly as he can right here in verses 19 and 20. And then he says, but now apart from the law, independent of the law, not through the law or with the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, been made known to us, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, how through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a great work that they did. No, that's not what it says. As a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And how did Jesus do this? Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a wrath Bearing sacrifice. By the way, Paul is referencing Leviticus here. That's what he's, he's talking about. He's talking about wrath bearing sacrifices. That's what the whole front half of Leviticus is about. In his blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed, all the sins before Christ came, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be both just the one who is able to give out judgment and wrath and justifier, the one who's able to show mercy and redeem, of the one who has faith in Jesus. So where is your boasting? It's excluded. And by what kind of law of works? No, no. But a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith is one. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. Friends, here's the thing. Christ calls us to obedience. 
You, you can't read the New Testament without a call to obedience. The difference is obedience is not a work for you to perform. Obedience is a result of the transformation that has taken place in you because of faith and repentance and the grace of God through Jesus Christ when you are filled and sealed by the Holy Spirit at salvation. I don't work to strive to please God. God works in me through Christ because He, in His grace, has found me well-pleasing to save. Not because of anything that I've done, but solely because of what he has done for me. And friends, I want to tell you this morning. The covenant that we live in now, the new covenant, friends, hear, hear me, hear me. The new covenant. It, it's just that it's new. It's not the old one redone. It's not the old one with a facelift. You don't take new wine and put it in old wineskins because the old wineskins will burst. By the way, he's talking about the kingdom and the covenant and that parable Jesus is. You get a new wineskin to put new wine in so that you preserve both the wineskin and the wine. That's the new. It's new. It's better. It's greater than it's different from it is not the same. And the Jews were called upon to try and live in obedience. Make your sacrifices. Keep your feast days. Follow all 16 and thir- 613 of these ordinances that I have given you. And not if, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, they call him the great prophet, mostly because of the end of the book of Deuteronomy. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses says, choose life, what he's gone through is he's gone through issues of obedience and disobedience, just like what happened right here. And he doesn't say, if... You break this covenant when you go into the land. Do you know what he says? When. Go back and read the end of Deuteronomy. He doesn't say, if you break this covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. He says, when you break this covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. And you know what? It didn't take them very long when they got into the land for them to break the covenant. It happened pretty quickly. The old covenant... Was a covenant of the working of man. I have to sacrifice. I have to bring offerings. I have to do this thing. I have to do the festivals. I have to not do the idols. I have to watch. I have to make sure that I don't do the wrong kind of work on the wrong kind of day. And is it one of those special days where Sabbath shows up in the middle of the week? Is it one of those weird days where we have two Sabbaths back to back? Did did I count the years right? Is this a seven year Sabbath? Did we keep the seven year Sabbath? Because Leviticus says that God's going to drive me out of the land to make up for all the Sabbaths that I forget. Did we celebrate the Jubilee year? Was this supposed to be the Jubilee year? Did we do that? No. That is not how the new covenant works. But the sad reality for most Christians is that's how we try to make the new covenant work. Did I do all the stuff that Jesus asked me today? Did I pray? Did I attend? Did I was at the thing? Did I show up? Did I, did I have, did I have a good little judgmental vibe toward that person that I don't think is as righteous as me? But did I cover up really well with my spiritual nuance? And so, uh, I'm sorry. I told you I was going to move to Medlin. We're all closet Pharisees. Man, got quiet in here. Nobody wants to say amen to that. It's true. 
We want to keep a new law. That's what we want to do. We want a huge checklist of stuff. And if I do all this stuff just the right way, then then of course God has to love me. And of course God has to think I'm great. And God has to bless me. And God has to do all this stuff for me. And if you're experiencing hard times in your life, the go-to in almost all of our minds is, what hidden secret sin am I living in that made God not bless me today? Friends, our covenant is not like that. The covenant that we live in now is not a covenant of our obedience, but it is a covenant of the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it a better covenant. The one and only one who could completely fulfill all of the requirements of a holy God came and fulfilled all the requirements of a holy God on our behalf and simultaneously was the priest, the altar and the sacrifice to seal that fulfillment. And then when he was resurrected from the dead, his gospel offer was, I'll just give it to you for free. All the obedience that you have to have before God, I have done and I'll just let you share in mine. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Like stripped down as I can make it. I have nothing that I can bring except sinful, dark, dirty hands. Then bring them. I will make you clean. I will make you whole. I will remove your heart of stone. I will replace it with a heart of flesh. I will take your uncircumcised heart and I will circumcise it. I will give you a real true sign of the covenant that can never be overturned. A new heart. You thought I was going to say baptism. No. Wonderfully, baptism is a remarkable picture of the obedience of Christ. And it's a joyful thing that we get to participate in. But guess what? It doesn't save me any more than anything else does. Participation in the Lord's table doesn't save me any more than anything else does. What saves me? Jesus Christ saves me. Not my efforts, not my works, not my endeavors, not my spiritual checklist, not my feast days, not my rituals, not 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 any of that stuff. You know what saves me? The obedience of Jesus Christ to his father to take on the sin of his people on the cross and to be raised from the dead and to fulfill all of the works of the old covenant in his life and his death and in his resurrection. And then to turn to his people and say, it is paid in full. That is what saves me. And friends, that is a better covenant by far. Friends, the new covenant is not a covenant based on my work. The new covenant is not based on my effort. The new covenant is based on the grace of God. And friends, hear me this morning, because this is what this is where it gets lost. Well, Philip, if you really think that, if you believe that, if you teach that people are just going to live however they want to. Guess what? You still have an uncircumcised heart if that's how you feel about it. Because the truly circumcised heart, the heart that has been transformed, the new covenant is transformative. 
When you become aware of your wretched condition and your sin and you meet face to face with the living God through Jesus Christ. And when you see him and you experience him in that salvific moment and you come to realize that he is not there to condemn you. He's not there to destroy you. He's not there to judge you, but he is there to throw open the cage of your sin filled life and remove the shackles of the stain filled life that you've been living and to bring you out of the darkness and into the light and to clothe you with His righteousness and to crown you with His glory and to let your starving soul feast at His banquet table. Your response is, whatever you want, Lord. That's your response. And He doesn't have to give you a checklist. Well, here's the... here's. Philip, here's the stuff. No, he doesn't have to do that. You know what he says? I tell you what I want you to do, Philip. I want you to do something you've never been able to do. And I'm giving you the power to do it now in the spirit. Love God and love your neighbor. That's it. That's it. You never could. But now I've made you capable. Quit loving yourself. That was the whole problem with your entire life. With self-love and the sin that comes from self-idolatry. Quit loving you all the time and love God and love your neighbor. How do I do that? Lots of ways. It's a great journey. Let's go find out together. I've given you some guidelines, not laws. Some principles that you can glean on how you can love God and love your neighbor. There's some things that I would love for you to be regularly participating in, like praying and Bible study and corporate worship and acts of sacrifice for other people. But I'm not going to give you a rigid, hardline checklist. That's not what this is about. This is about you looking like my son, Jesus. Wow. So you're, you're not mad at me? No, you're my child. I love you. But what about, what about, what about all that stuff? What, about, what stuff? What do you mean what stuff? You're a God who remembers everything. You're all knowing God. Yeah, I have forgotten your sin. I remember it no more. I've removed it as far as the east is from the west. Christ Jesus has declared you not guilty. And I am agreeing with him that you are not guilty. You are now a redeemed child of mine. And I hold these things against you no more. Not guilty, set free. You have no record. But but what is it you want me to like do? Like I mean, I, what animals do I need to kill? And what what weird rigid things do I need to put in my life? And no, just love God and love people. I'm confused. But what if I mess up? I covered the old ones. I covered the new ones. What? But I mean, there's this whole section of your book that's like, do, 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 don't, 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 do, 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 don't, don't, don't. And then like I get over here and it's like, love God, love people. I, I can't be reading this right. Oh, yeah, you're reading it right. It's the better covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ is our righteous judge. He's our just and our justifier. 
He's the one who can declare God's judgment against the unrepentant. And he's the one who can declare total redemptive mercy on those who have believed and repented and turned from their sins. Man, it's But God, I'm sure I'm going to have some idols in my life. That's okay. My spirit will help you throw them down. You don't have to be perfect. I have already declared you perfect. And your effort at being perfect will fall terribly short every time. But my declaration that you are holy will stand forever. And even when you're faithless, I will be faithful. What? Say, Philip, this sounds way too good to be true. Friends, it's the truest thing I've ever said from this pulpit. The new covenant in Jesus Christ is a covenant of freedom. You are no longer a slave to your sin. You're no longer a slave to the burden of the law because of your sin. You have been set free from both of them. Because you could never fulfill the law and and gain righteousness. And you could never keep the law and hold on to righteousness. So God in Christ... Cause Jesus to fulfill all the law of righteousness and to die and be raised from the dead to secure righteousness and as a free gift to you without payment and without any merit on your part gives you all of his righteousness. So so what about What about blessings and curses? Friend, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are blessed. But don't have to do stuff to get the blessing, you know, call the the hotline and send them nine ninety nine plus shipping and handling and get the thing sent to me so I can get the blessing rag and, you know, put my seed money down for the great. No. Heavens, no. Please don't do that. Don't do that. And we kind of laugh at that version of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, but we act like it in a lot of other ways in our lives. God, I really need your blessing in this. So I'm going to pray more than I've been praying. Or I'm going to study more than I've been studying. Or I'm going to show up more than I've been showing. It's kind of like Martin Luther underneath his tree. God, if you save me from this thunderstorm, I'll go into the ministry or whatever. You know, that's not how this works. If you are in Christ, Jesus Christ is your blessing. And so it doesn't matter if you're living in a land of prosperity like America, where you have a lot of freedom to come and do what we're doing this morning, or if you're under severe persecution on the other side of the sea, having to move the day of the week that you have worship and hide inside of a tent with a hole punched in it with the light to shine through so you can read your Bible. doesn't matter which one of those circumstances you find yourself in. You are richly blessed because you have Christ. That's very different from the other covenant. They are not the same. And friends, hear me this morning. One is way better than the other one.
If you hadn't figured out what that is, I'd be happy to talk with you further after our service is done today. But friend, that's the joy and the benefit and the beauty and the blessing of being in Christ Jesus. There is no law for me to keep. There's no rituals for me to perform. There's no pleasing God with my works. My works are dead when I'm in my sin. But when I'm made alive together with Christ, my works now have been empowered by the Spirit to bless other people as a demonstration that I love them. And to be considered acts of worship as I demonstrate that I love God. Love God, love people. That's it. Christ is my blessing. He is my righteousness. He's my crown of glory. He's the table that I feast at. All of my needs are met in Jesus. And there's nothing that I do that makes God love me more. And there's nothing that I do that makes God love me less. Because I am in Christ. Friends, that's the beauty of the covenant. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this glorious covenant. This beautiful, remarkable, marvelous new covenant. Father, forgive us. When we try to slip into old covenant mode. And we try to think that our works. Are what you will find pleasing about us. God, help us to remember that without Christ, there is nothing pleasing about us. But Father, because we are in Christ, you look on us and are well pleased with us, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. You have circumcised our heart. You have declared us righteous and holy. You have written your name on us. You've called us co-heirs with Christ. You've seated us on thrones in the heavenly places with him. And you have crowned us with his glory as partakers in his glory. You let us sit at your banquet table and feast on the riches that you supply. And you charge us nothing for it. Father God, thank you for a covenant of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.